Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. More democracy, that's what's needed in crises rather than less. That is the view of many, including our next guest, who's written a new policy paper scrutinising the appointment of powers um, given to the National COVID-19 Commission Advisory Board. Uh, The board's uh, headed by former mining executive Ned Nev Power and was handpicked by the Prime Minister back in March to advise on keeping supply chains open in that first lockdown. Last month, its role was expanded and extended to cover the longer term economic recovery period. Uh, but its opaque relationship with the executive arm of the federal government has not yet been fully resolved. Elizabeth Hicks's research is into the Commission's part of a School of Government series called Governing During Crises. Uh, the series is designed to help understand the ways we govern in the face of different types of crisis. And it's really great to have you on Triple R, Elizabeth. Very good morning to you. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, and I, I gave just a really quick rundown there of the kind of genesis of the National COVID Commission. Can you explain perhaps a little more for those who um, didn't get that memo, uh, who's on the committee and, and how it came to be? Okay, so you've actually given a really good summary. Um, It started in March. It was just a very small group of people who the Prime Minister selected, uh, mainly business contacts. And from what we can understand, it was basically just the Prime Minister picking up the phone to contact people. Uh, It started off doing things like securing supply chains. It was in a context where there was a shortage of PPE. Uh, It was difficult getting to supplies, supplies to remote communities. But then over time, that function has seen to evolve. It now has an operational budget of $5 million, uh, and it's giving advice from what we know and everything we know, we have only know from leaks to the media, on um, particularly spending potentially billions of dollars investing in gas infrastructure. So I guess that's, that's the reason why it's come under fire. And as you said, that who is on the commission is also quite important. Nev Power, the chairman, he's a former executive on Strike Energy. He stood down from the board of directors after um, concerns around conflict of interests. But there are also other members of the commission. So Andrew Liveris, not actually a commissioner, but an advisor to commission uh, on the manufacturing task force that prepared this uh, report recommending investment in gas infrastructure. So there's quite a few people on that commission with connections to the gas industry and and that makes that uh, advice to invest in gas infrastructure a little bit problematic. And Elizabeth, why has there been a level of secrecy around just exactly sort of who is on the commission and what its remit is as its, uh, I guess, role has expanded and evolved over the past few months? Well, your guess is as good as mine. Um, I I wouldn't want to put conjecture into that about why that secrecy is there, but obviously it's concerning that a commission that is operating at this kind of level, um, giving advice that that is obviously has um, implications for the climate crisis, intergenerational implications, but also at a time when uh, Australia's economic recovery from the COVID-19 related recession is really crucial. Um, it's, it's a bit problematic that we don't know more about that. 
And this idea of, of making, you know, quick decisions at the executive level, uh, well, I mean, the reality is it happens when we're in crisis, which is, um, I guess, why the School of Government is having a look at that in particular. And I think, you know, we are more tolerant of government um, running from the executive um, more in crises. You know, I think there's a general sense that, well, we've got to get things done and and, and make it happen fast and, and, and so forth. Why does it matter um, if we shift power to the executive, Elizabeth, in a crisis? So, yeah, this is a really interesting question, really important question. And I think it really hits on a lot of the rhetoric that the government has used to justify this commission. We really need to distinguish between decisions that are connected with the crisis that we have now, so the COVID crisis, so decisions that are really urgent about, okay, how do we how do we secure PPE? How do we get supplies? How do we ensure that there are, there's food getting to supermarkets? And decisions that have longer implications. So some of the things that we know, and again, these are the only things we know from, from leaks to the media, they're recommending things like billions of dollars being spent in constructing new pipelines, in uh, guaranteeing gas prices. These aren't decisions that really need to be made right now. They're, and because they're decisions that are very complex, they're controversial, Australia's energy mix is a very complex beast, it's important that, that those decisions are made through the proper democratic processes. And they're not kind of made now during a time of crisis when minds are distracted, when Parliament isn't sitting. And one of the more recent controversies has kind of revolved around Prime Minister Scott Morrison suggesting that the Commission should function within Cabinet and therefore have the same kind of confidentiality and and solidarity, I guess, that is normally expected of those kind of Cabinet processes. And as elected representatives, we can sort of understand why that might be important for the government of the day. But why is that problematic when it comes to a Commission such as this that has people on it that have not been elected by the public. So this is also an issue that we've discussed a lot at Melbourne Law School. Um, I'll refer you also there to a report um, earlier in the series by Professor Cheryl Saunders um, on the National Cabinet. It's really important. So Cabinet Cabinet can only be comprised of federal ministers. And the reason is because those federal ministers are answerable to parliament. So if, if cabinet is making decisions, at the end of the day, they need to sit in parliament and answer to those decisions to a broader representation of what voters have elected. If you're having these private business people, um, it's very unclear who they are. There isn't any transparency about their conflict of interest. Um, There's no way of calling them up if they're not actually sitting in parliament. And again, it's a problem that parliament isn't sitting. So I think this move, particularly recently, to kind of bring the, the, the National COVID Commission in with Cabinet and and it, it's quite concerning and it's not something that's ever really been done before. Yeah, it um, sounds unprecedented, but um, it is unprecedented times as well. Elizabeth um, Hicks is with the University of Melbourne and we're talking about um, the National COVID-19 Commission Advisory Board and their appointment and powers and she's been scrutinising these for a, part, um, for a paper that has been published through the Governing During Crises series, a really interesting um, number of, of papers having a look at the way that we do decision making in crises and really important work um, right now. And at the end of last month, um, you know, Greg Combay, I understand, who, you know, might know something about cabinet solidarity, um, stepped down out of that advisory board and six more business executives were added. Do we know why why this committee has such a focus on business, business Elizabeth? Elizabeth? 
So again, your guess is as good as mine. Everything we know about this commission is based on leaks to media um, and also the Senate Select Committee has had a couple of hearings uh, where they've questioned members of the commission. But again, as Dylan pointed out, that move to uh, attach the advisory board to Cabinet, I have no idea how, again, there's no clarity about how that will work. That could also make it more difficult for the Senate to, to question um, that group. So I'm. I would suggest that um, maybe that move was partially strategic and as a response to criticisms that they haven't been transparent. Yeah, and also the conflict of interest questions that you mentioned earlier. But I, I wonder. I mean, if they are advisory. Do they, in fact, have power and influence? Do we even know that? So this is, again, the thing, though. We, because we don't have access to the way um, that they are making decisions, and, and you'll notice this if you read through those Senate transcripts, if you're very bored in lockdown, um, <laughs> there was a point where senators actually asked, you know, who do you take directions from? And the commissioner couldn't actually answer that. They couldn't say whether they were doing it on their own initiative or whether they were taking directions. Um, So the whole thing is quite uncertain. Do you hear any of these types of concerns about the way that the National um, COVID-19 Commission is functioning from either the Labor Party or, or opposition from those who aren't actually in government? Um, so, well, if you look at the Senate Select Committee, um, they've raised quite a few concerns. So Jackie Lammy has been um, very vocal as well about this. And then you see there's some senators there from the Labor Party. Obviously, the Greens have been very vocal about this. So Senator Wish Wilson, Senator Seawitt. Um, there have been quite a few concerns raised about uh, how the commission is operating. But obviously, because Parliament is not sitting, perhaps those concerns aren't getting the voice they normally would. And obviously, with the, with the COVID pandemic, Everyone is so focused on, and rightly so, focused on um, the immediate risks and the immediate problems that Australia is facing, that a lot of attention has been diverted from these kind of structures and these kinds of problems, which is another reason why times of crisis are so problematic. For, for democratic institutions. And you mentioned um, a few times now that Parliament hasn't been sitting, it certainly hasn't been sitting as much as it normally would in, in a year, although that was, you know, we saw you know, quite a bit of suspended Parliament last year as well. But, I mean, what's, what's your thinking around that? We know that, you know, there's, they will be sitting later this month federally. In Victoria, um, Parliament hasn't been sitting and yet we saw the, the sort of upper house um, sit last week. Um, what's your thinking about the effect of this? So this isn't directly within the scope of my research. I'll refer you there to um, the report or the brief that was prepared for the Melbourne School of Government just prior to my brief by um, Associate Professor Tom Daly, who's been really vocal about this. Um, I think given... The rest of Australia needs to turn up to work in in the current circumstances. The rest of the Victoria does. I have colleagues who have been literally taking Zoom meetings in their bathroom to um, avoid children screaming in the next room. It, it seems quite strange to me that Parliament doesn't have to sit in those circumstances. I'm sure that they would be able to find some kind of technolo- technological solution, get on Zoom to um, to meet and to discuss these things. And if they can't, then decisions like, um, you know, how we potentially spend billions of dollars of taxpayer money where, where a lot of jobs are riding on, on those investment decisions, they can certainly wait until 
a solution is found to, to allow Parliament to sit. And as you outlined earlier, Elizabeth, there are really kind of long-term decisions being made um, potentially as part of this um, National COVID-19 Commission Advisory Board as well. We've heard from the government talking about um, talking up gas, for example, and, and the idea of a gas-led recovery. Do we know how long the Commission will actually sit for and, and what its role might entail kind of, you know, months down the track as we hope start to emerge from the current situation we're in? I have no idea. The senators who were uh, questioning the commissioners in the Senate Select Committee have no idea. I would hazard a guess that the commissioners have no idea. And this is exactly what's wrong with having a body set up that doesn't have any kind of rules, legislation that, that says what its particular objective is, what it's meant to achieve and when its end date is. So Professor John Howe, a professor at Melbourne Law School, he's also the director of the Melbourne School of Government, he pointed this out a couple of weeks ago that, that when you have bodies like this, they're meant to have a clearly defined task with an end date. This commission doesn't have an end date. It's not even clear what its task is. It, its terms of reference are incredibly vague. They haven't even been updated since the commissioner has cha- commission has changed gear. So there's no knowing what it's going to be doing six weeks or six months from now. And I mean, certainly we should be holding the Prime Minister and and Cabinet accountable to decisions around the advisory board. But I mean, are there ethical questions here too around um, private citizens, business leaders participating in such an opaque committee? So there are certainly precedents for people with a background from business to be involved in advising government. But the point is, uh, because they they potentially have stakes in the outcomes of those decisions, it's really crucial that when you do have government bodies or advisory boards advising government, that there are clear rules and clear processes set out so that those interests can be managed and so that we know how those, the the factors that might motivate people to, to give certain advice. Well, thanks so much for speaking on Triple R about it, Elizabeth. Um, I must say I've been intrigued by that commission, so it was very um, useful to read your very short, um, concise paper um, exploring some of the issues. So thanks very much. Thanks for having me on the show. Elizabeth Hicks, um, she's over at the University of Melbourne, and there's a whole series if you're interested in these kinds of accountabilities and also the way that we govern in crises. Our tendency in Australia is to go to executive government. Um, You can head to the University of Melbourne website, the School of Government, and find a whole series there. Uh, It's called Governing During Crises Series. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. And we're going to be talking about fire now. Um, it's something we know quite a bit about in this state and, of course, in this country, not just bad fire like Black Saturday and the catastrophic infernos that we experienced last summer, but also good fire, the practice of cultural and controlled burns that are used all over this country to regenerate bush and protect townships. But there's some grey areas in there as well and disagreement here and around the world about what kind of fire is needed and when 
and which fires should be suppressed, which is why we're really pleased this morning to have one of the world's foremost fire historians with us. Uh, Stephen J. Pine is Professor Emetris at Arizona State University, and the second edition of his book, Fire, A Brief History, has been published 20 years after the first, and this one comes with a dedicated chapter on Australia, and it's really great to have Stephen J. Pine on the line. Uh, welcome to Melbourne. Welcome to Triple R, Stephen. Well, thank you, and good day. And it has been 20 years since you published the first edition of this book. I missed it first time round and very pleased to have read it this time. Did you find much had changed when you looked at the history of fire um, just over the last 20 years? Well, certainly, yes, yes and no. Uh, I, I, I concluded the, uh, the edition 20 years ago uh, with all of the headlines that uh, the earth is burning, uh, the world is on fire, this was the great year of fire, uh, droughts, fires everywhere, uh, and suddenly I'm saying it's the same except it's intensified. So in some respect, in some respect the problem has been growing for a long time, but over the last 20 years it's really accelerated and has gotten caught up with lots of other things, particularly climate change, um, as kind of a, a, a global theme as well. But lots of other scientists, lots of other people um, are becoming interested in the subject that weren't before. It used to be very easy to study fire and landscape because very few people studied it. It was mostly in forestry schools and a few other places, and now it's all over the place, as it should be. I mean, fire fire touches everything. And you've coined the term pyrocene for the epoch we currently <laughs> live in. And people, non-scientific-minded um, people might uh, know what the Anthropocene is, but what is the pyrocene? And I guess um, I wonder if you can explain the reasoning behind coining that particular term and, and why that might be. Sure. Well, the pyrocene is, is sort of a fire-centred uh, interpretation of the Anthropocene. And so you can ask, why fire? Well, uh, the Earth is a uniquely fire planet. It's the only fire planet we know. It's had fire since it's had terrestrial vegetation. And people, we're a uniquely fire creature. We have the species monopoly over it. This is, you know, fire is our ecological signature. So you put the two together, and it's a pretty good tracer of how humans have interacted with the world. So that's sort of the academic side, intellectually interesting. But I've also been struck by the number of observers recently who have said that our future is not only so dire, but so strange that we have no narrative by which to connect it to the past. And we have no analogs for what's coming at us. And it seems to me, as a fire historian, that's not true. We have a great narrative. It's the story of humanity and fire. And I think we have a pretty apt analogy, and this is my sense of the pyrocene, that when you add up all of our fire practices, everything we do with living landscapes, but all the things we do with what I call lithic landscapes, that is fossil fuels and combustion, add those together and we are creating the fire equivalent of an ice age. Yeah, I found that really, um, you know, that was part of your book that I read over again, this idea of... of uh, looking forward and looking back and, you know, I think people understand Ice Age, um, but that we can create a different kind of an Ice Age uh, is something I'd never thought through. Is that, are you finding other people like me that you, you kind of go, huh, what do you, what do you mean by that? Like, what do you mean by that? 
Well, actually, I find that most people are sort of struck by it. That somehow, I, I, I don't. I'm not sure it's an internet meme ready yet, but <laughs> it people it has caught people's fancy. They sort of get it. They can mm. visualize it. So, I mean, for me, climate history is is a sub history of well, a sub narrative of fire history. It's because of our fire practices that we are changing the climate. Then the climate feeds back into other expressions of fire. So. Um, it it just seems to me uh, it, it's a way of bringing together a lot of stuff that's scattered. If you think about what was what happened in, in the Great Ice Ages, well, you had all these great ice sheets and glaciers, but you had all kinds of periglacial stuff. You had these great lakes. You have permafrost. Uh, you have these. Um, outwashed plains and so forth. You've got mass extinctions. You've got changes in sea level. Well, you start thinking about it, and that's sort of what we have now. Instead of having constant fires sitting there like an ice sheet, we have fire-influenced landscapes where fire is more prominent and more prominent in shaping the character of those landscapes. Maybe our mega smoke balls are the equivalent of um, the great outwash plains and list plains. Um, rising sea level instead of dropping, mass extinctions. You know, it, it's actually a way of crystallizing in a kind of, in a way that it's easy to visualize all the things that, that are coming about because of our use and misuse of fire. Yeah, I, I love a book that can make me see the world around me a little bit differently, and your book absolutely does that. It's incredibly broad and, and ambitious in scope, charting the kind of evolution of human civilizations over an extraordinary uh, long period of time. And we in Melbourne are living with um, a curfew at the moment, as has happened in, in various areas in the States. And I was really fascinated to read that the very term curfew comes from the French for cup of fire and was actually based on inspectors making sure people had their fires out at night time. Well, that's right. I mean, fire fire is the other contagion. Uh, it's the one without a vaccine. <laughs> Absolutely. And, uh, I mean, I guess taking that further, uh, historically we haven't looked at fire kind of on its own terms. And now even when we experience large-scale bushfires and so on in this country, or if there's a fire, for example, here in Victoria in the Hazelwood Mine, we see it in relation to maybe an extraordinarily hot summer or maybe some misadministration or sort of malmanagement in some way. Why is it that we haven't properly, I guess, appreciated this relationship between a warming climate and what we've done with burning fossil fuels and so on and this ever threat that particularly people in Australia are faced with of bushfires on a kind of seasonal basis? Well, I think, yeah, and that's great. That's a great observation. And I, I think for me, the, the real phase change occurs when we start burning fossil fuels because we had always used fire to change the world, to make the world more habitable for us. But there are really limits uh, if if your control over the landscape is primarily by ignition, where and how you set fire, you're dependent on the, the character of the land to carry the fire. If you're in an agricultural setting, you can change the fuels. You, you grow fuels, you leave fallow, you slash, you dry, you drain swamp, you do all kinds of other things. But there were always limits. There were always ecological boundaries. You can't burn or coax more fuel out than what nature can provide. If you do, you begin extracting too much, then the system degrades. But when we started burning fossil biomass, which in some ways is a kind of industrial fallow, suddenly um, 
the amount of stuff available to burn is essentially unbounded. And it's outside all the old ecological constraints. I mean, you used to have to burn in certain seasons. You would have to burn in certain places. There were all these kinds of biological and geophysical boundaries. Now we can burn day and night, winter and summer, wet or dry, it doesn't matter. And so the problem is no longer about sinks, finding stuff to burn. It's about, excuse me, sources. It's about sinks, where to put it all. So we're taking stuff now out of the geologic past. We're burning it in the present with all kinds of weird interactions that we, we don't really understand. And then we're releasing that effluent into the future. So my interest as a fire historian coming at it, I can see this as a continual narrative. People getting by burning fossil fuels what they used to get by burning uh, living landscapes uh, and the fuels that were produced for that in various ways. It enormously expanded our firepower, but we haven't, we didn't think through uh, all the consequences. Now we're seeing them. Yeah, you don't you say that again. Stephen J. Pines with us. He's foremost fire uh, historian and his book Fire, A Brief History, has been re-released in a second edition with a chapter on Australia and actually a chapter looking to the future. And it's interesting you speak about um, fossil fuels there because, uh, again, you know, sometimes studying the obvious is the most profound thing to do. And your way of explaining how we kind of dissect fire, we may not ever see a flame and yet there's fire as part of our electricity supply, there's fire in in our vehicles that we drive and, and so forth. Yeah. Uh, do you feel that you know telling that narrative or building that story can help us change our relationship with fire or return to something of of the natural state of, of knowledge around fire? Yeah. Well uh, I, I certainly hope so. And part of it uh, part of it is that we've we've gotten into a, uh, an issue of, of fossil fuels and climate change, which is which is an unmistakable relationship, but then people can counter, well, all the large fires aren't just the result of um, climate change. Uh, you know, they're land use. There's all the vegetation. Uh, there are a history of our fire practices and the rest. But what I, I think looking at the long history of humanity and fire shows is that most of those changes, the land use changes, the fire practices, also go back to this inflection into fossil fuels. That has allowed us to reorganize the landscape uh, to determine how we how we do agriculture, uh, how we burn or don't burn landscapes in the traditional way. All that begins uh, shifting. I mean, we would not be able to pretend to be able to fight large fires or intense fires um, if you took away all of our fossil fuel-powered machinery. Take away the aircraft and the helicopters. Take away the engines. Take away the pumps and the chainsaws. Take away the trucks that carry crews and all the rest of it. We would not be able to pretend to do that. We would have to do the way we have humans have traditionally done it, by close cultivation in areas that matter. And other than that, burning, substituting our fires for for nature's in some in some pattern that that makes sense all around. So. My point is that the shift, it's not just, I'm, it's actually, it, the impact of fossil fuels is actually deeper than just climate. Uh, and I think fire history shows that. And we see all these kinds of weird intersections where these two realms of burning, which don't tend to coexist very nicely, uh, clash. And the great example for me is our, our power lines uh, coming from 
you know, uh, power plants burning fossil fuels, crossing living landscapes, setting fires. And now you've got these two realms of fires um, no longer competing, but actually colluding. And that's what we're starting to see now. So I'm, I, I hope that my, my history, and if I were a brief history, really is a, a brief book. It's really an attempt to be as fairly concise as well as comprehensive, uh, will illustrate the ways in which our, our ability to manipulate fire has really changed the world in ways that we don't really, we don't appreciate anymore because most of our fires are now hidden. And we know too that how fire has been used to manage landscapes has changed over time. I mean, certainly here in Australia, but in other places as well. And uh, following the, the, I think, forever fires, you described them as um, this past summer in, in Australia, the really disastrous fires we experienced down here. There's been a lot of conversations about the merits of controlled burning and back burning and so on, and also Indigenous cultural burning as a way of managing the land and, I guess, returning to some form of original vegetation as well. What's your sense about the way Australia is currently managing this process um, in the current moment? Well, I I think there are only two countries uh, that, to to my mind, have really seriously engaged fire, Uh, and that's Australia and the U.S., and um, that doesn't mean that we're we're managing it in the best way, but we have taken it seriously in ways that most other countries have not. We're starting to see some now in uh, Europe uh, alarmed about climate change and, and a landscape that that has in many ways, you know, for, for several thousand years was close cultivated and, and uh, burned, but always with light bar, burns in an agricultural and pastoral setting, now unraveling because the economy has changed. It's gone to a more industrial society. The landscape's overgrowing, plus climate change. Now they're seeing it. So I'm getting a little off, off course here, but apart, apart from, from that, uh, Australia and the U.S. have taken it seriously and tried to engage it. I find Australia uh, really extraordinary, not just because you have lots of fires. You are a fire continent, and some of those fires are uh, enormously savage, uh, but because you have a cultural engagement with it. I mean, you've got a tradition of fire paintings that goes back to Ed you know, indigenous times. Um, you have fire poetry, uh, fire literature, uh, fire songs. Um, you have a world-class fire science, and you've got a fire politics. I mean, I can't think of any other country that has had, over the last century, the equivalent of four royal commissions on fire. It It's very close to Australian experience, and it's gotten into your culture in ways that really aren't true. Uh, elsewhere. Yeah, we have an inquiry happening right now, actually, and filling <laughs> yeah. our newspapers in amongst the um, the COVID news. And I mean, we you know had a state of disaster here in Victoria back in January around the fires. We're living in one now around the plague as well. And so we're you know it's just one of these things, isn't it? But I wonder. I mean, you mentioned the that there is some. Uh, similarity or, or um, difference in approach taken here and also in the United States. And of course, we share fire personnel at times and, and back each other up with regards to that. Um, is that therefore influencing how things are done on both continents? A little bit. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not sure that sending jet lagged 
fire bosses across <laughs> across the Pacific is the best way uh, to manage it. It's certainly an expression of international mateship, and that's that's to be encouraged. I think there are there are exchange fire study tour exchanges every couple of years. Uh, back and forth and that is probably more productive we we can learn a lot from each other there's a lot of science exchange um the u.s uh you know we 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 realized that trying to eliminate fire from the landscape was a mistake and this boiled over in the 1960s and uh, our national park service changed its fire policy from a suppression only program to a fire restoration project in 1968 and the U.S. Forest Service, our largest fire agency, did the same in 1978. So 40, 50 years ago, um, we, we tried to, to convert out of this uh, sort of urban model of firefighting projected into into our wildlands and countryside, recognizing that it failed. We certainly have to be able to control fires and protect our communities and critical assets like water, you know, municipal watersheds. But we realized that trying to take fires out uh, was just a mistake, and it made conditions worse. So we have been trying, you know, in this country for like 50 years uh, to find some way to get it back. And some places are more or less succeeding. They're doing reasonably well. Some places uh, will probably never will, will never make it. Uh, and it's very mixed. And now we're getting into a position where most fire officers on the ground no longer think we're going to get ahead of the problem. They can't even pretend that. You know, the old model was science will tell us what to do and management will muster the resources and political will to do it and we will get ahead of the problem and we will be able to control it within our general parameters. And the sense is there are too many things coming at us too fast. We're not in control of this. We lost that opportunity. And so they're trying to work with, with wildfires and uh, push and pull them in various ways, not only for protection, to protect firefighters and uh, reduce some of the damages that fire suppression could do, but also to get some some useful benefits out of these fires. And so it's it's uh, it's a really interesting approach. And part of what I find interesting is the sense that it's too late. Um, we still had a sense. 40 or 50 years ago that if we just applied ourselves, uh, we knew enough and we could we could wrestle this uh, to the ground. We, we could get ahead of it uh, and bend the curve, if you will. And uh, I think the sense is that that time is gone. There are some places that can do it. We can certainly protect our communities from burning. It's, it's absurd that we have houses and structures burn. Uh, we, we know enough to, to do that, to, to know what's needed. Uh, but generally on the landscape overall, uh, that's, that's not in our control, and there's a certain amount of humility that needs to be brought to bear. And I really didn't answer your earlier question about controlled burning of various sorts. Part of the issue is getting the right kind of fire on the landscape, and some of that may be hazard reduction burning, reduce mm -hmm. the fuel. Some of that may be getting the ecological burning right, and the fuel will sort itself out. Some of that may be cultural burning to restore sort of cultural heritage, but also express some land. There are all kinds of ways to do it. There's no one model. and. I, I hate to see it caught up with identity politics and people arguing from disciplines or uh, ur 
urban-rural uh, backgrounds or whatever uh, about this is the only way, this is the right way. It, it seems the larger question is we are going to have a lot more fire coming at us uh, in the next few decades. And we are going to have to manage that fire. We are not going to be able to suppress it. We are going to have to find ways to uh, cultivate some of that landscape, uh, manipulate it in some ways, but also use a lot of fire, all kinds of fire for a variety of purposes in a variety of ways uh, to try to build some fire resilience into those landscapes because it's going to get a lot worse uh, before it gets better. So I think we need to make it work and we need to quit fighting about who's right. Everybody can look at the fire and interpret it in their own prism. I don't care as long as it's right on the land. Yeah, so actually... I'm sorry, um, you, you got me going. <laughs> I know, no, no. And it, it, I mean, I want to keep asking you questions, except for we've run out of time, and that's why I was yeah, pausing. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's been really, uh, really interesting speaking with you, and, and thank you for reissuing your book. Uh, um, Stephen J. Pine has been with us. He's based over in Arizona. Fire, A Brief History, highly recommended. It's in its second edition with a focus on Australia. And, uh, yeah, I think that idea of, of cooperation on some level, um, Stephen, is is a really apt way to end this conversation because certainly that's what we're going to need, particularly this summer in Australia. So thank you. Well, good luck to you and thank you very much for for the invitation. Have a good one. Thanks, Stephen. You You too. Uh, Stephen J. Pine, and um, you can um, get his book. It's uh, out in Australia, and I'm just flicking for the... It's out through New South if you're looking for it. Stephen J. Pine, Fire, A Brief History, Second Edition. Triple... And in his foray into documentary performance poet and author Stephen Oliver takes a fresh look at the Captain James Cook story in Looky Looky Here Comes Cookie. Presented as a modern day songline, the doco takes a look at the James Cook story through the eyes of First Nations songmen and women. Alice Skye, Mojo Juju, Kev Carmody, Trials, Birds are just some of the performers who take us on a, a journey through history and through their songwriting. And it's really wonderful to have Stephen Oliver with us on the line. Um, welcome to Triple R. Good morning. No worries. Thanks for having me. How are you guys? Yeah, okay. Doing really well, thanks. And um, I mean, listeners might be familiar with your work on black comedy and, and elsewhere as well. What was it like putting together a documentary? Was that a very different process for you? It was. It was a very different process. Um, which is kind of why I wanted to do it uh, in the first place, because I was a bit tentative about first, about whether to actually do it or not. Because, you know, a lot of stuff I've done kind of like whether it's been a web series or, you know, a sketch comedy show or poetry. Um, so this is a very different thing for me. But, um, yeah, no, that's why I thought I'd grab the ball by the horns and give it a go. And um, I loved it. I enjoyed it. Every moment of it, mostly. Yeah, well, you got to go to some, you know, really beautiful places in amongst um, your journey. And perhaps tell us a little bit about the idea behind it being a modern day songline. I suppose, you know, you get that geographical sense then of you sort of start in South Australia and go all the way up to the, the Torres Strait. Yeah, well, um, I was contacted last year by um, Denny McLean from our Timon Pictures. And, um, you know, they had this idea about doing a song. I mean, we were going to touch art and everything in it. We were looking at um, just different ways of creative expression that we could, you know, tell the story. But 
um, you know, we wanted to use songs because music is a very integral thing, you know, to Aboriginal people in the sense that, um, you know, when, with our music, you know, traditionally, it's about teaching us culture, it's about our creation stories, it teaches us who are that. We are reaffirmed our identity, you know, so our creation stories. And um, so, you know, we want, um, we wanted to take that kind of avenue because, you know, I say to people now that, you know, when I write stuff, I'm not trying to show so much show people what we think, but how we think. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and and it's it's a really beautiful doco, and I'm um, kind of you know really funny in times as, uh, in places as well. How did the musicians in the film go about? I guess sort of balancing and respecting those sort of sacred song lines in particular areas, and creating something new out of the the current experience, I guess, of um, you know marking 250 years since Captain Cook arrived um, on these shores. Yeah, well, I think it was the thing about, you know, we, I mean, it was a, it was an interesting process the way we did it because we we got this, like, the, you know, the singer-songwriters involved and then they would go away and they'd write the songs and then we'd hear the songs and they would, then I'd write, you know, or uh, Danielle or Stephen would write something to, to fit the narrative of the song. But this is why we're all shooting at the same time. Mm. So, um yeah, I mean, the, the process the guys went through, I mean, I only spent a couple of minutes with them, or probably about half a day, I should say, um, with them in the studio, and that was when we were doing Moji's track. And, um, you know, it was, it was just that kind of process of where mob were imagining, you know, what it must have been like. They, they were either imagining where it is we're going or where it is we're, we've been. And you, and you hear that in the songs, and so, um, you know, the guys... That's basically what they did. They just kind of sat down and they thought about the way we're affected as Aboriginal people, the way we've been affected, the way we continue to be affected, um, you know, and uh, I think it all comes across in their music beautifully, I might add. I think you guys did such an awesome job, but I'm, I'm very blessed to have sat down and you know, chatted with them, especially Uncle Ted. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I mean, it's such a, a great, um, uh, you know, artist who, who you've, you've worked with as part of this film. I was really struck by Trials at the beginning, talking about how his, I guess, in his um, artistic process and the music he writes and, you know, he produces with, with AB Original and so on, um, that he kind of thinks about his process as writing for white Australia because, you know, First Nations people around the country can sort of understand his, his experience very, very, um, very clearly. Clearly, I wonder about your approach in putting this documentary together. I mean, did you have the audience in mind and and thinking about what they might take from the way that that this is presented? Um, no, what, well, what, I mean, when I write, really, I write I write with Aboriginal people in mind because I I know in a lot of sense I'm accountable to Aboriginal people. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, if I get something wrong, um, you know, um, then, yeah, then, then I can get put up on my elders or, or, you know, my peers or that, whatever. Yeah. Um, but the reason why I do that, though, is because I write as an Aboriginal person. And so, you know, when I talk about showing people how we think, you know, rather than what we think, or, you know, or, or tell people what to think, I just want people to kind of look at us and think and have a think about it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And kind of go, you know, that bit where I talk about how we talk about, you know, we think collectively. Like, if you, if you look at it, like, our, um, you know, our, our health mandate with Aboriginal health, you know, we have a thing about if one of us is sick, then all of us are sick. Yeah. And, and so it's, it's, that, it's that kind of process, that, you know, that kind of thinking that I, that I try to bring forward in my, 
in my writings. Yeah, that was really I'm resonant. Sure everyone, you know what I mean? Like, I'm not just writing for Aboriginal people. Like, obviously, it's for everyone. Everyone, you know. Um, but it's always Aboriginal people at the, at the forefront of my mind. Because, because I, I've got a lot of writing on it, I yeah, it was really interesting, particularly, I mean, you know, given what we've seen with um, uh, the kind of furor around statues and so on, and you talk about the, the statue of, of James Cook and how, um, you know, the act of, of having someone uh, kind of memorialised in stone is not necessarily something that many First Nations people would think was actually a good idea um, and kind of highlights this way that we can kind of think about history in, in a more, I guess, holistic sense, I think, which, um, which is very very crucial to the process of, of truth-telling and people understanding and acknowledging the, the truth and, and diversity of experience um, in Australia. Yeah, well, I think it's true. Remember what it is, you know, like I kind of wanted to, you know, have people kind of think about history and how we, do we look at history and how do we view history. And, you know, it's kind of like, I mean, there's a, there's a bit of a segment where Scott Master talks about, you know, both histories can be respected and you know, to start the reconciliation process. And it's kind of like, well, we've been talking about reconciliation for ages. You know, that's been put on the table. Mm. Um, but so why is it only kind of important now? You know what I mean? But it's also that thing of going, well, you know, how can you say both sisters can be respected when we're seeing Aboriginal sacred sites being deregistered, you know, or blown up, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, when, when you've got... It's like, for example, you know, WA, they, they deregistered 1,200 heritage-listed sites, sites that were, you know, uh, sacred sites have little people. Yet they paid, like, $2 million to move $150 dollar. Do you know what I mean? So mm. it's like, well, you can't tell me that history is, that both of them are respected and they're viewed in the same way, especially when, you know, if you spray-paint a cafe statue of James Court, you know, they look at a taking legislation, they get it protected by police, yeah, years ago when they had the um, statue of um, the Aboriginal warrior Yagan, who was decapitated, you know, and his head was used as a trophy, I was sent over to, uh, to Britain, you know, the museum. So what people in Perth would do is that they would decapitate the statue of Yagan. And it happened that many times that eventually they had to move the statue onto an island so people couldn't get to it. So, you know what I mean? It's like, mm. so where's, the, where's, the, where's the outcry when that happened to, like, a statue of an Aboriginal warrior? Why, why is it not the same? you know, viewed in the same way. Yeah, and you um, speak and, and also um, participants in the, the documentary uh, speak about a complementary history. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, that's an actual quote by Margot O'Neill. But, um, you know, when we talk about the VNCOM, it, it's like we look, you know, I remember being in school and reading history books and, you know, we're getting towards history. Um, and you'd learn about all this stuff about Australia, but then, about, you know, since, since colonialism, since, you know, but there's only, like, eight pages to Aboriginal people. And so it was even, like, when you look at the show, like, you know, the story of us, you had, you had the first episode dedicated, uh, what I'd say to Aboriginal people, but it was really around the Sydney area. Um, and then you should look at the following seven episodes, I think it was. So, you know, that was all, like, colonial Australia. So... You'd have 80,000 years, 100,000 years, you know, of, of history crammed into one hour, and you get 200, you know, 30, 40 years, whatever it was at the time on the screen. That gets 70, uh, seven episodes. Do you know what I mean? So when we talk about it being complementary, it's like, well, we have a shared history now. 
And if we're going to talk about that shared history, then we need to talk about that history in its entirety. We can't be just be saying that history only starts at a certain point in this country when, you know, if we're talking about, you know, when people often say, um, oh, you know, as far as I'm concerned, there's only one race, there's a human race. And it's like, okay, but, but then why do we only focus on European achievement? If we're talking about humans, why are we not focusing on, on humanity? And why are we not recognising that we've got things in WA that are 20,000 years old? Do you know what I mean? So it, it's that, it's about that, you know, they're going to be complementary. If they're going to, it's going to, it's got to be shared and it's got to be fully, fully recognised in its entirety. And it has to be appreciated given the same value. Yeah, and I think that really comes through strongly in uh, Looky Looky, Here Comes Cookie. And we're speaking with Stephen Oliver, um, uh, who you'd probably, well, you'd know from many guises, but as a performance poet, and you do some performance poetry as part of the doco. Was that, was that always planned from the beginning uh, that, you would, that you would also perform yourself as well as hosting and interviewing? Well, no, not really, but we kind of actually were going through a, you know, we'd, we'd doing the themes or something like that, and I said, you know what, I've got, I've got poems that tie in with this. Um, and, and so, you know, I sat down with McGregor and I chatted these poems, and then we were like, well, let's film them, and, um, you know, see if we, if we could tie them in. Unfortunately, we did, and, uh, you know, I don't think that's a credit to McGregor. He did such a he did such a great job as the director because it was hard for me, like, you know, as, as I'm doing it, whether I'm performing the poetry, whether I'm interviewing people, you know, I'm all the, in all these different locations. So um, the way it was going to tie in, but, yeah, I think McGregor did a, did a beautiful job with that, and, and luckily my poems made it, otherwise I would have been... Very annoyed that I got up at five o'clock in the morning to stand on a cliff. Wasn't the sunrise worth it for in its own right? <laughs> um, you know what? No, it was. It, it was. There were so many moments where I just, I'm, I'm a, yeah, I was constantly reminded of yeah the work I do. Is I'm very fortunate in the sense of the people I get to talk to and the places I get to travel. Um, you know, even watching the documentary, because the thing I love about the doco, what McGregor did as well, is that it's not just Aboriginal people in focus, that's just folks in focus, but it's also the land in focus. Yeah, that was and throughout, wasn't it? It's everywhere, like in all, all of your, uh, all the participants or the people that f- appear and musicians. I mean, the the imagery of Alice Skye and people on Triple R know her music very well, Um uh, walking through the landscape was just beautiful. Just beautiful. It's gorgeous, isn't it? Like, and a lot of that was her own backyard, mind you. <laughs> <laughs> Very lucky where she lived. But um, yeah, no. It, it was, and you know, hopefully people look at it and kind of just remember how blessed we are to live on this land. And I often say, you know, when we talk about we love this country, what is it we mean when we say we love this country? Is it we love this this land that we're standing on? Is it? we love this system or set of value. Like, what are we actually talking about when we say we love this country? Yeah. And, uh, I mean, hearing you talk about the kind of, uh, I guess, complementary history or, or um, you know, finding a way for the broader sort of white Australia to, to acknowledge um, uh, the the broader history of not just around sort of Cook's Landing and so on, but the whole colonial project and, and that sort of thing. I was really struck um, in the documentary where you travel up to the Torres Strait and speak with someone um, that, that essentially, uh, you know, suggests that, that Cook's great 
claim to have um, claimed possession of what's called Possession Island up there. It was based on a fabrication and there's this image of a, a famous painting that he's shown to not have the type of vegetation and so on that, that is on that island. And I wonder what your sense is, I mean, having made this documentary of the role of, of film and other media forms in broadcasting these types of, you know, really interesting but, but often quite complex and multifaceted stories about um, first contact and Australia's history? Um, yeah, well, I mean, that, you know, like this thing was, I learned so much on this thing as well, you know what I mean? Like in the sense of, you know, people like to, what did you learn? And I, and I think of all those kind of stuff in that well, as well. But I think the biggest thing I learned was I realised that we're often told to think of him as a hero, we're often told to think of him as a villain. But we never really go deeper into that and why we're meant to think that, you know what I mean? Like, mm. we're given this kind of blail where it's like, oh, he, he did this, he's great, or, you know, he did this, he's evil. Um, and so, you know, when, when you're talking to mob and, you know, like elders and stuff like that, and, I mean, even when he talks about, you know, the painting, when we're talking about the painting, that actual painting was a gift to Australia that was presented in the 1800s. So this was long after, you know, like, Cook had, mm. had even arrived at these shores. And then, you know, you also know the things about how with Possession Island, like, I mean, Jason Banks was a botanist. Now, he hasn't had anything in his journals about stepping onto that island, which is which is very strange. And, and, you know, there was also artists on the Endeavour who would draw, like, animals or plant life and stuff. None of them drew anything. Um, and so, so you, it's kind of, you know, when you're looking at that and you're going, okay, well, yeah, that, that is kind of strange. Why, you know, why is it that... It, you know, we're told this thing happened on possession. You know, there's no kind of remnants or anything like, you know, where, where is that flag? You know, where is it? Where, you know, and even that painting, is, you know, it's got like drummer boys and everything in you know, it. Like there was, yeah. there was no drummers on the end. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it was, it's just, it is, it's a total, it's a total fabrication. It's just how someone imagined it and they painted that image. Um, so yeah, I mean, I mean, it was, it was, very fascinating. Yeah, I, I thought so as well. And uh, I mean, thinking about the the period now that this documentary is screening, uh, will you be able to share a, a cinema with anyone to watch it? I mean, I'm not sure where where you're based at the moment, but um, will you get that sort of collective experience uh, watching this film? Do you think? Um, I might do in Brisbane. I, uh, so we have the our oh, it's September October. So I don't want to say anything because I'll jinx myself. I know I will. I know. But yeah. what is, fingers crossed. Because a lot has changed, yeah? Because, yeah, like, I mean, the 250 years since Cook um, thing, the, that circumnavigation of the ship that was cancelled that was supposed to happen. And, and, of course, since last year, we've had the Black Lives Matter protests globally and here in Australia as well. So, what, I mean, what's your sense of of how this will be re- received, the, the documentary, Looky Looky, Here Comes Cookie. Is it, is it maybe different now to what you might have imagined last year? Um, well, I mean, it is. It is in a lot of ways. I mean, it was, you know, I, um, I thought I'd be a lot more stressed in the sense of, yeah, and this is, this is another reason why I wanted to do the doco, um, is that I wanted to do it because I, I knew there was going to be this... Um, you know, a certain amount of like all these celebrations and stuff like that, all that stuff kind of going on. And I'm one of those people like I do, I do stress out when Australia Day comes around. 
and you know, and I stress out because I I've seen comments where people, you know, say things like, "I wish it was like the old days where we could go around and shoot a monster." Um, or yeah, or I'm going to have an Australia Day party that's going to have settlers versus Aborigines. And so, you know, that's why I just stay away, I stay away from comments now. Um, and so I was kind of like thinking it was going to be that same kind of, of thing where I'm going to be seeing these comments again or, you know, hearing it and, you know, and it does. It, it does wear you down. Mm. But at the same time, you know, it's not just you they're talking about. They're talking about your entire people. They're talking about your children. They're talking about your mother. They're talking about, you know, that's that's who people are talking about. So, um, you know, it, but I, I think I think the documentary is, is generous enough, you know. Whatever, you know, like I think it, I don't think it's a thing where we went in and we went to bash cook. You know what I mean? It's not that at all. Um, I think it's just a thing of making people question. And you know, when it comes back to that whole thinking thing, like I don't. I don't want to tell people what to think. I want to show them how we think. But at the end of the day, I just want people to think. And yeah. in the case they think of us and, and how we, you know, might feel about that. And if I respect people's right to celebrate, then people should also respect my right to mourn. Yeah, absolutely. And and what about the songs in the film? Are they getting kind of a release at all separate from that? They will be. I mean, you'd have to talk about them, actually, like McGregor and the guys, more the artists. So I'm not too sure I should ask them that, actually. <laughs> but I've been asking a couple of times now. Um, but hopefully, because, I mean, it's such, it's such good music. Um, and it's such a great mix as well, I think. You know, like, you kind of we mix it up a little bit. So um, hopefully, hopefully. Because I've only got the demos sent to me. I haven't got the actual tracks. So. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, I wouldn't mind getting my hands on those as well. Feels like the the film clip's already made for them. So, um, I mean, the the, the well, scenery. Well, that's what I mean. Like everyone, just, well, you know, about the trip. I like I was saying to like you know before I was talking about how me trying to imagine how it was all coming together as well. But I had this moment where I just thought, you know, the ancestors were showing us we were on the right track because on Australia Day we went to um the Capricorn Hotel in Sydney. You know, um, and the guys, you know, they were lovely. They were great. Um, the owners and stuff like that that we met. But when we walked in, just by chance, like that, the TV was on. Um, uh, what show was it? I think it might have been The Loop. But as we walked into this place, the Apical Hotel, the song that was playing was Solid Rock. Wow. I know. So I was like, okay, that, that's, a, that's a sign that we're doing something right. So, um, so yeah. We'll, we'll see how it goes. We'll let the music talk. You know what I mean? It's often talk about music. You know, music is truth. And I, I think that comes across in the sense of going, music requires you to be truthful in the sense that you can't have a song that's about love or that's about hate and make it sound like it's a loving song. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Like you've got to have the words match the feel of the song. Um and I, and I just, I hope people feel that, you know what I mean? Because it, they, they all come from a very heartfelt place. Yeah, they really, I mean, that really comes through. And I, I have to ask, is that that pub, um, the Captain Cook pub where you had your meal, is that um, now renamed? Is that the one that was recently renamed? 
No. I heard that a Captain Hook Hotel oh, was well, probably renamed. Heaps of but, them. Yeah, and the right wing media went nuts about yeah, that yeah. apparently. But anyway, it's another anyway, story. I don't know. Well, we should have fact checked that one. I, I didn't know which if it was or not, but I straight away thought about it. I went, gee, things really have changed since last year. Um, fingers crossed. Um, How was the steak sandwich wow. anyway, um, yeah. Stephen? <laughs> it, it was really good. There was actually two. There was actually we had someone on standby. So I got the out with the guys. I mean, I couldn't even get through that one. You saw how huge it was. Yeah, it was really big. It into my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that was good. It was it was very good. But um, but that's interesting, isn't it? Like I don't know. Like if, if people losing their mind about a, a pub and. Yet we've still got universities and monuments and statues and, you know what I mean? And mm. if people own a pub, if they own that, why can't they rename that? You know, what yeah. happened to free speech? If you can't, you know, if you can't express your views in that sense, uh, yeah. Totally. <laughs> well, people can um, see this documentary, um, best name ever, Looky Looky, Here Comes Cookie, uh, as part of MIF, and you can head to the MIF website to get all the details about how you can get it. I suppose, you know, hopefully you've got the big screen at home. Uh, it will also um, be on your telly uh, on the 20th of August uh, on SBS, uh, is it NITV? Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh- uh, yes, it is, it's on SBS uh, uh, and NRTV. Um, what am I thinking here? I should know this. Uh, it's the uh, sort of thing we should have. Watch, it's because I watch On Demand and I just want to go SBS On Demand. But That's right. <laughs> I think Dylan's got <laughs> all the details. Oh, it's, one of the, it's one of the other SBS channels. The SBS, yeah. SBS. I will look that up. So thank you for but, but hopefully, yeah, hopefully get to see it on the big screen because I mean, this much techiness deserves to be on the big screen. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah totally. totally. The landscape's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it is screening as part of MIF on Sunday, uh, August sixteenth at seven pm as well. So you can head to the MIF website if you want to see it um, very, very soon. Thanks so much for joining us today, Stephen. It's been an um, absolute joy having you on the show, and best of luck with whatever else you've got coming uh, coming up for this year. It's obviously a, a tough time for creatives at the moment but hopefully you manage uh, to keep busy yes i am thankfully so thank you for that and uh, thanks for the chat this morning guys just have a good one yeah thanks Cheers. and um, all the best for getting getting into brisbane to see it um with a bunch of people as well um, yeah. <laughs> but they can enjoy the sexiness as well yeah. <laughs> um, Stephen oliver um and yeah his uh, performance poetry features as part of him hosting that doco looky looky here comes cookie Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.